I was singing this morning, it just came into my head, there's this moment where Jesus is teaching on prayer, and he asks a, a, a question, he goes, which of you, when your son asks for bread, would give uh, him a stone? And I was looking for a pen, because I was just working on my last minute details of my sermon, and I was up here, and I'm really good at losing pens, and I'd lost one that I'd been given already earlier this morning. And so I come up here, I'm like, one of the people here, like, has to write a note, right, of something. And I'm thinking, Brian, come on, he's got to probably have a pen here in case there's any last minute things. And I look and I go, oh, he does. And then I pick it up, and it's a flathead. Well, you know, so which of you, when you ask for a pen, are given a flathead? Um, but this says a lot about Brian. He, um, one, he doesn't need to take notes because he's just always prepared. I mean, uh, but no, he's, he's very mechanical and he's very gifted. Um, he is gifted to sing and lead us, but he's also gifted in doing a lot with his hands. And one of the things I'd like to ask you to do is to say thank you when you see him because he is doing a profound amount of work on our church building that we would be having to, you know, have others and pay others more, um, probably. Uh, and so it's a gift that we have Brian as our leader um, leading us in worship, but it's also he's using his gifts to bless our church with our church building. And uh, I think so far he's hung probably, what is it, 18 speakers in the lobby. He's hanging ex speakers outside of the building on the patio area. He hung, I stopped in there yesterday, he's hung. How many lights do you think you've hung? So he's hung, you know, between 15 and a million lights, and he's hanging all of the the like speakers and then wiring them all. I mean, he's just doing a lot. And um, it, it, if I did it, none of it would work. So it's, it's, we're really, we're really lucky. Thank you, Brian. And make sure uh, when you see him just to say thank you, even though he wasn't there for me when I needed a pen, but I'm sure that flathead is, you know, I'm not sure how you use that at, at the piano, but I'm not a worship leader. I'm a, I'm a, teaching pastor, hopefully today I'll be a good one. Let me pray and uh, we'll, dump, we'll jump into our teaching this morning. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for um, the collection of your people, God, that we have all been uniquely created with very different uh, gifts, very different talents, um, even just our very different experiences and views, God, all come together in this thing we call the church that forms a family where we love one another, we encourage one another, we support one another, we help one another, we live life together following you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would just embody that. A lot of times that's hard. A lot of times that takes work. A lot of times we let each other down. But God, I pray for um, that we would demonstrate the rugged commitment that um, you have for us. You are unwilling to let us go. Um, and you will, you love us to the deepest parts of who we are, and you love us despite our weaknesses and despite our failures. And I pray that we would, um, that that would profoundly uh, affect us in real ways and how we interact with each other in this church. So we pray for your, our unity, God, because the devil is always out like a roaring lion prowling 
looking for opportunity to divide us. And so, Holy Spirit, unite us um, in a way that only you can do. Um, as we look into your word, teach us, encourage us, uh, compel us. Uh, Lord, whatever you need to do in our hearts, we invite you to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. We, uh, we're going to finish this three-week series we've been in called The Prosperity Paradox, where we've been looking at prosperity, we've been looking at generosity, we've been looking at uh, money. And if it's okay, I uh, would like to give a plug for kind of the next couple series that we're going to be in, primarily because I wrote them and I'm excited about it. And I know that's selfish and probably wrong, but it's the truth. And uh, I hope you'll, you'll make your way back. Next week, we're going to start a three-week series where we're looking at um, Peter. And, you know, I'm amazed at the Apostle Peter. When you look at his story and you look at the Gospels uh, story about him, like he's kind of a mess. He's kind of like never, <laughs> never getting it. And then you get to the end of Jesus's life where he, he totally, uh, you know, that moment where he's confronted and he, in essence, abandons Christ um, rejecting that he is who he is because he's scared and he's sort of in like safety mode because Jesus has been arrested and Jesus is, you know, going to likely at best be imprisoned, at worst be killed, and he doesn't want that for himself. And yet, fast forward, 40 days, 40 or so days, 60 maybe, I, but the, like two months later, and you look at him in Acts 2, and he's preaching, he's professing, um, you know, loudly uh, what is happening, who, what God has done. Like, I don't care who hears. He starts going around, like, uh, preaching, healing. I mean, I don't, you know, you think about what could I really change in my life in the next 40 to 60 days? There's some things, but like, this, something happened to this guy that created a boldness in him that's remarkable. And that's a series title, Be Bold. Life requires you to be bold. Being a Christian requires you to be bold. And the same spirit that was at work at Peter and brought about a boldness in him is the same spirit that is available to you and I. And so that's what we're going to look at together. And then the series after that is a, a relationship series called Lies That Keep Couples Apart. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of those things that are like we buy into that culture says like should, is true about relationship, is true about um, marriage. And yet those, those things that we sort of sometimes attach to our relationships, our marriages, um, they end up wreaking havoc on them. Like they set unrealistic expectations which unmet expectation in relationships brings strife. So we're going to look at some of those lies and go like, is, uh, what does the Bible say? <laughs> you know, like does it affirm that or does it, does it, does it say something different? So that's kind of where we're going. I hope you'll, uh, you'll be able to make it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And then the next series will be our first series in our new building, which will be uh, exciting. So, um, but we have some work to do on um, the paradox of prosperity. I, uh, I am finishing up a program at Northern Seminary in Chicago looking at the New, uh, New Testament program. Um, and part of, part of the, I, I hope to graduate in, in June if I can finish out. I'm taking a Greek class right now, which I think is hilarious. Like, they left Greek till the very end, as if, like, if you do it at the beginning, you probably drop out. 
Um, and I told my wife, I was like, this is, uh, she goes, I, go, I don't want this is awful. And she goes, well, why don't you quit? I go, I can't quit now. I can, like, see the finish line. But that's probably why they did it. She was joking, by the way. She wasn't actually saying I should. But, um, but anyways, a part of what you need to do is write a thesis and, and uh, anything on the New Testament. I've mentioned this before. Well, I went back and forth on a couple of different things. I ended up on money. Um, I, you know, I, and one of the reasons I, I came from a sales position uh, before I was a pastor and I've been interested in, in just money. And so when I came to the church, I, I recognized some things like, whoa, like I, I got to be uh, careful here because, you know, sales, like it was, man, uh, it was sort of Gordon Gecko, like, you know, close the deal and make money. And the more money you make, the better you are at your job, the happier you'll be. And realizing coming into the church, like, if, if that sort of makes its way into leadership in the church, like, that's problematic. That's, that's, that's really problematic. And so for me, I've been on a journey personally where I've put good, I think, close people next to me in this process as a way to work through views on money, giving, um, to create accountability. And um, I've learned a lot through just my own journey with money. And I've said this in the past, but when I first became a pastor, like, I did not give to the church. Because in my mind, I was like, I'm giving, like, do you know how late I'm here? Do you know, like, I'm vacuuming up the building, putting chairs away, like, writing sermons, starting small groups? Like, if that's not enough, like, at least let me keep my cash, you know? Like, and then um, I had these moments in my life where it was like, that's not that's not right. Like, I, I even had a good friend call me out and like that, like, that's an excuse. Like, you're not trusting God with your money. And it led me on this journey personally um, where I have experienced, I experience now the joy of giving and trusting God with money. And we've been blessed at our church, really blessed financially. Um, you know, without the last number of years, the generosity of our church, and I, I'm proud of the stewardship that we, the staff, and others have, have, have um, you know, we have done our best to steward the money you've given and save and save and save, and it has allowed us to get into this, this building, which, which brings us into this next chapter of our, our church. And I don't mean to say that pridefully, but um, it's, it's, it's a story God's been telling in my life, and it's a story God's telling in our church, and it's an important story to tell. And I said that week one, like when you think about the things that you're struggling with or like the shadows in your life that create anxiety, uh, I mean, how many of them are related around money? I mean, how often, and then I think I asked too, week one, like how many of you think about money every day? And it's like all of us. Man, if it's like, if it's something has that much like influence in our lives, like we've got to talk about it in the church. We've got to interact with it we've got to see what God says about it, because he says a whole lot. And that's what we've been trying to do in this series. So back to my thesis. I'm writing this thesis, and my, my whole thing was like, I'm going to do, uh, I did a chapter on like where the church is, kind of evangelicalism in, in the United States and where we are now. 
And then I did a chapter on the Old Testament because I just don't think you can talk about money in the New Testament while ignoring a large chunk of the Bible. And then my, I, I, did, I wanted to do primarily Jesus and money and then the early church and money. And I was like, I'm going to stay away from Paul primarily because I didn't want to write anymore. <laughs> I was sick of writing. And so I was like, that's cool. Like, I just want to, let's, let's look at Jesus. Jesus is way better than Paul anyways, like, you know. And let's just look at Jesus and then how he influenced the earliest Christians, even though Paul kind of fit in that. And so anyways, I write it up. And my goal was to have a copy to um, my program director, whose name is Scott McKnight. He's awesome. You should check him out. Um, and I sent it to Scott at, like, December. I think I sent it before Christmas because I wanted to, like, like, that was, like, my gift to myself. And, but my thing was, I, I said in my email to him, I go, here it is, like, and I know you wanted it March 1st of graduating year, but I'm thinking, like, here's a copy. My own personal goal was to get this to you before the end of the calendar year, but then I have two months. You can come back, and you can kind of hit me on, like, what, and I'm hoping in the back of my mind, he just emails me back and goes, this is awesome, great, pass. <laughs> it was worse than, than him emailing me, but what happened was worse than him emailing me back and saying, like, failed. Here's what he says. He goes, Aaron, I don't remember exactly his words, but I liked it. You know, I thought it was well-written, da-da-da-da-da-da. And he goes, um, for now, I'm gonna, I, I want to mark it as a pass. And I'm not demanding this from you, but I would suggest you add a chapter, uh, at least a chapter on Paul. <laughs> this is like when your parents say, I'm not mad at you, I'm disappointed in you. Because it's like, oh, you passed, and I'm not demanding you to do this, but you kind of should. And he went on to say this. He goes, um, in my, he goes, in my opinion is that a thesis on money in the New Testament is incomplete without talking about 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Dude, okay, just tell me I need to do it, like another chapter instead. So then I'm like, what do I do? And of course I wrote it, I went in and I started to work on it, which actually really ended up helping me with this, this sermon today, because we are going to look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 together. And one of the things about Paul that I think is important to note is, um, you know, prior to his conversion, what you have is you have an elite religious man. Um, you know, Judaism was, in essence, a sort of merit-based religion with a lot of rules and a lot of covenants and a lot of you can do this and you can't do that. And Paul was an observant Torah-following Jew. And he likely, was, he likely followed the Torah after his conversion, but with a different heart. And I'll get to that in a second. But a lot of, you know, Torah-observant Jews at the time— um, I can't speak for now, but, but, but at the time, it was very merit-based. It was, it was, you know, what you did or how you lived, um, the commands you followed, the rules you, you followed, in essence, led to merit, salvation, you know, good standing with God. And that's, that's the Paul, or the Saul, which was his name, um, that, that is, that's Paul, prior conversion. And then he's on, his, he's on his way to Damascus, and Jesus shows up, and everything changes for him. Jesus shows up, and there is this, this change, this dramatic change in Paul 
that, that the grace and love of Jesus Christ, the gift, the Christ gift, um, dramatically reshapes all areas of his life. Like Jesus, in essence, on the road to Damascus, murdered merit-based religion for Paul. It just murdered it. And it changed how Paul looked at everything, including money. We see a shift in, in, in Paul. Like, I want to I read this quote for you. It says, Paul's rejection of merit-based religion for him spilled over into a rejection of merit-based economics that was displaced by economic generosity that corresponded to the divine generosity of grace. In other words, merit-based religion, where your good standing with God was a result of what you did, the Christ gift dramatically transformed Paul's view of God's salvation. But it also changed practically how he lived his life. It changed, he went from merit-based economics, which is how economics work. You work, you get money. It's merit-based. It's just how it's set up. But it changed Paul to see that, that economically in the kingdom of God, it works different. And um, that instead of merit-based economics, merit-based economics for Paul in the kingdom of God is replaced with generosity, lavish generosity that stems from the grace, the gift of Christ Jesus, the love of God. And I'm... I'm going to try to share what that means and what that uh, looks like. You know, my wife and I, both of our kids are adopted, and our first adoption, it was amazing how people helped us financially. We had so many people, uh, many of you, helped us financially. And I want you to know, I was thinking about my gratitude sermon, um, actually, like this morning, um, and I was thinking about Jonas, my kids, and I just, I was like, if it weren't for so many of these people, uh, you know, we wouldn't have been able to bring him home. And I look at him and I, there's a, a well, like there's a gratitude. I want you to know this, that I'm so grateful for you, for many of your guys' uh, help and generosity. But with, with bringing our kids t into our family, um, but I was... Uh, you know, our first adoption was kind of a windy road, and, and at one point, we, we were aligned with a mom who was giving birth to a little girl in Florida, and we traveled down to Florida for the birth, and, uh, I don't, you know, I'll never forget, we're in, like, this hotel room, and we're waiting, and then we're like, okay, because it was going to be a C-section, so we knew exactly what was happening, and, like, the adoption agency could not get in touch with the birth mom. And it's like, it's okay, just nothing, like... It's probably whatever. She's just busy. Da, da, da. Well, that went on for like a day or two. And finally, the, the adoption agency is just like after a day or I don't remember how long it was. It's a bit of a blur. But they're like, she left. Like it, obviously, she's gone. So it's, it's you guys should go home. And um, which, you know, the, the truth is, and this has nothing to do with the sermon, but adoption um, it was hard, but that, that 
that mom has every right to make that decision up until that last moment. Every right. Every right. And, uh, and, and it hurt. It's painful for the adoptive parents, but um, there's, there's like no hard feelings toward her in any way, but it was painful. And part of the adoption agency thing, which was weird, and I don't remember all the details about it, but part of it was like <laughs> we lost $10,000. That was like, they, they would not give back for a failed adoption like this. So it's like, you get the like pain, like the emotional pain, and then you get the financial pain. Like, wow, okay. And you're signing up for that. You're like taking, there's, there's like inherent risk to the whole thing. And it wasn't a surprise. Like, but it was like, okay, it's like the cherry on the top of, you know, Mount Depression. Like, so we come back and um, come back and here, we're here on a Sunday and preaching and at the end of a service, um, this, this person comes up to me and goes, I just, uh, so sorry about everything, but I just felt like God put it on my heart to give you this. And it was a folded check and, and I said, wow, thank you. I just put it in my pocket and uh, I said, thank you. And, uh, you know, went about putting stuff away, that sort of thing. And then went home and kind of forgot about it. But then I was like, oh, I f you know, someone, so-and-so came up and said God put on their heart to give us this. And I handed it to my wife. And my wife opened it up and her eyes got huge and she started to cry. Like, what? And she turned the check over and it was t for $10,000. And um, I get a bit emotional about it just because, you know, God, like, He's going to take care of us. Like, he's not going to mess around with us if we trust him. And um, the way things work in the kingdom of God, just economically, is different than the way things work in the world. And sometimes we're on the side where we give, and then on the other side, times we're on the side where we receive. And it's really hard at times to receive, but um, it was a tremendous act of generosity or the love, like I don't, I didn't deserve any of that, we didn't deserve any of that, but yet it was gifted to us. And I go, what compels a person to cut a check for 10 grand like that? What compels people to be radically generous? You know, is it, um, is it because they have a lot of money? Easier to give if you've got a ton of it. I don't buy that. I think, in fact, the more money you have, I think, uh, I think it might be harder to give. Um... But is it because they have a lot, so it's just easier to be generous? Is it guilt and shame? You just feel guilty, like I'm supposed to do this. Like, let's go back to the merit-based stuff. I, you know, I, I'm supposed to give. I'm supposed to write a check to the church or to that foundation or to this need. You feel guilty if you don't. Is it tax reasons? You get the tax benefit, you know, otherwise. It's either going to the government or somewhere else, the church, you know. What is it that compels people to be radically generous? What is it when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How do you not become a... Uh, 
a person who gives out of what's left, like a leftover giver. You know, if there's some there, I'll give it. How do, how do, you, like, how do you move from maybe being a person who gives out of guilt or shame? How do you move from maybe giving just for tax reasons and become a cheerful giver? Like when you cut the check, you have joy. Paul is in essence saying like, God loves people who have figured that out. Like, I want to know, like, how do you become a cheerful giver? Is it get more so you can give more? No. That's not how the economics of the kingdom of God work. Let me read for you. And I'm not putting it up on the screen. I actually did it by choice. I just want you to listen. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, which, by the way, you need to know the context. Like, uh, there's a famine going on in Jerusalem, a real nasty famine. And people are suffering, dying, are in hunger. And Paul is asking the church in Corinth if they would help financially the church in the region in Jerusalem to meet this need. So he says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even, a, a, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the servants to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your own part. It's good. Paul kind of writes like he's all over the place uh, a little bit here. But what in essence he's saying is he's saying like the people gave themselves to the Lord. And, and what he's saying is they went to God like, like they, and they go, we trust God. We just trust God. Like God is the influencer here. It's not shame. It's not guilt. It's not having a lot because the Macedonian church didn't have a lot. They were, in fact, the Macedonian church, it's really compelling because what in essence Paul is saying is he's saying to the church in Corinth, look, I'm not going to shame or guilt you. I don't want to do that. But I want to, in, in, I want to show you like a case study of a church that gets it. Like something's happening in this church that I want to happen in you and the church there in Corinth. Like here's a church that's in a different situation than you. Like you have more, you are better off than Macedonia. They are facing persecution. They don't have a lot. They're struggling financially, and yet they pleaded with us to be a part of this giving campaign. They urged us, and they responded. They gave even beyond what they probably should have. He's saying, like, not to, like, necessarily create this competitiveness between the two, but to, in essence, say, look what can happen when God has your heart. These people radically trusted God that they could give beyond what they maybe should have or that what worldly made sense. Like they're suffering, they're dying, they don't have enough. Like they need food probably for meals, but they maybe gave that last dollar 
to the church, not knowing then where, we don't have enough for food, but we just, look, God's not going to mess around with us. He loves us. He's going to take care of us. We've seen him come through in the past. He will do it again. Paul's not trying to create a competitive nature here. He's trying to show them, look what can happen. This is real. Like this is the story of God doing something real in these people's hearts and in their minds. So brush off the excuses, Corinth. See, the, the scholars believe Corinth, they were doing well, they were doing okay, and they had bought into a worldly view of money and possessions. Save, you know, think about uh, retirement, like uh, make good investments, money, money produces happiness. And, and the people in Corinth were living like the world. I mean, it sounds a lot like us, probably. We're like, the world and the messaging of the world holds more influence around our view and our use of money than the kingdom of God. And, and Paul is saying like, guys, it can be much better. Look at the Macedonian church. Look, what, what, like, look how they're, they're seeing things differently. And they're seeing things differently because, because they're allowing God's work in their hearts and their minds to transform them. So he goes on to say, um, but since you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness and in love, we have kindled in you. See that you excel in this grace of giving. Grace is going to be this word he comes back to again and again and again. See to it that you excel in the grace of, of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Like, in other words, like, you know, when the rubber hits the road, do you practice what you preach? For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here, here is like the, the, the root where everything grows from. For we, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for, for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is, um, I've got to find this um, quote because I thought it was so good. Once One commentary said, um, this has to be one of the most remarkable and defiant statements in all of gospel rhetoric. It is a defiance of all conventional economic wisdom that it takes money to make money. Paul has recast salific salvific categories into economic terms so that self-giving is a way to generate abundant wealth and well-being for others, which is a really theological, smart, intellectual way to say what Paul is saying is saying uh, that it was through like poverty, through giving generously, uh, that Joy and happiness is 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 birth. The 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 you know we you need money to make money. 
It's economically true. But in the kingdom, uh, Paul is, is, in essence, saying, like, hold on, it's, it's upside down, which so much of the kingdom of God is upside down. Like, Jesus, who was wealthy, you know, sitting on the throne in heaven, becomes like us, enters poverty. For what? To produce what? Salvation, wealth, like a wealth that goes way beyond what the wealth, like the, the economic wealth that you can accrue and what that can bring in this world. He's redefining wealth. A wealthy person in Paul's mind is not somebody who has a lot of money. It's somebody who has recognizes all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus has given. And that no matter how much a person like I have or I don't have or how long I live, I have the wealth, the joy, the confidence that comes in the salvation that Jesus Christ came to give. Listen to this. Remember, he goes on into verse 9, or chapter 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. And here's where he's like, don't, look, there's going to be a lot of things in you. There are going to be wrong motives that might get you to give. He says, give in your heart what you, what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly. This isn't just an Old Testament thing where God's like, you know, we talked about this. We get a little nervous, like we talk about prosperity, giving, and being blessed. And yet here Paul's just saying, like, God wants to bless you, and he will bless you in a variety of ways. It might, it, it might not be, you know, dollar for dollar. It might come in the form of a blessing that has nothing to do with material things. But it's going to be a blessing from God. And he goes, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all these things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What's he saying here? He's like, if you, the fear often is if I give, I won't have enough for myself. And so we, we store, we're like squirrels, you know, just storing up all that we can for a future that's not even guaranteed. And Paul's saying, look, God, he's going to take care of you. He's going to meet every single one of your needs. And I'm kind of backtracking into week one of the sermon, but again, like, God's not going to let you down if you trust him. As it's written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will, will result in thanksgiving to God. I mean, it is hard to get away from what Paul's saying here. Is he saying like, look, you reap what you sow if you're willing to give? Like God's gonna trust you with money. Because you're stewarding it well. 
And he's not, you know, like, if you give to get, God's going to see through that and be like, well, come on. Like, I, I need people who are, ra- you know, generously and ravishly, you know, giving and who trust me because, you know, I'm going to bless them, even financially, I'm going to bless them so that they can give more because I want to meet people's needs. You're not going to just give so you can store more for yourself. He's saying, like, if you give and you trust, God's going to give you more so you can give and trust. And then you get to be a part of the joy that comes through generosity. I don't know what that person, how they felt when they, they I hope I express my gratitude enough to say thank you. But they got to be a part of my and my kids' story. They'll forever be a part of Jonas's story of bringing my son into my family forever. And I hope that means something to that person forever because it's going to mean something to me forever. And I don't know, but that's, my son is way better than having more stuff. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we enter this kingdom economic structure, we're going to meet other people's needs, but it's also going to be like a megaphone to a, a, a struggling, hurting world that when your obedience to what God is saying about money marries your confession of faith in Jesus Christ, people will come to trust Jesus Christ. That's why we want to be generous in our church. That's why one of our values is generosity. Because one of the best ways we can evangelize is what Paul is saying here. That we're obedient with how we live our lives, including with our money, along with our profession of Jesus Christ. Because the other, if you think about it, The profession of Jesus Christ with disobedience is detrimental to the faith. And that's what hurts when we hear about churches, you know, swindling money or, you know, all those those things. Like, man, that it's just detrimental to the, the message of the church. But what's powerful is when we when we accompany our profession of faith with obedience and trust with our money or with what we have. The power, Paul says, that, um, verse 14, and in their prayers for you, your hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing graces God, God, give, God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Like, wow, that God's invited us into that. That God, I mean, grace is really only grace if it builds on itself. It's, grace is always meant to be moving. It means it's, it's of divine origin. It comes from God. It's a gift of God. It's given to you because he loves you. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. None of us do. You can't earn it. It's just, it's of divine origin. It's not merit-based. It's just God is giving it to you because he loves you. He's passing it on. He's making this, in essence, investment in you. And grace only works if it keeps building upon. And so what's meant to happen is the love and the grace and the the forgiveness of God 
we experience it wells up in us, and then it pours out to others. And the same is true about money. Everything we have, God's given. And he gives and he gives, and it's money. It's meant to be moving. We then, you know, use it as a tool to meet the needs of others and help others and, and, and help the mission and the kingdom of God continue to move. And God's like, in this flow, I'm never going to stop. I'm going to take care of you. The problem is we stop the flow. We get what we get and uh, we hold it. And it's like, that's not how it's supposed to work because it's not how grace works. And look, everything stems from grace. That's it. That's what he's saying. Everything stems from the gift, the Christ gift. Look at what Jesus has done for you. In his richness, he became poor so you could be rich. It doesn't make sense, but it's unbelievable. It's amazing. So don't give because of a sermon series. Don't give because of an ask. Don't give because of shame compulsion. Don't give because you have a lot. And, you know, don't give because of taxes, even though it's nice. It's a side benefit. Ask God to help you become a cheerful giver by first setting your eyes upon Jesus and the grace of God and what he has done for you and the promises of God that he has for you. Go to him and it opens our hands and we enter this moving sort of sick, like, like circular, <laughs> God's pouring into us, we're pouring into others, God's pouring, you know, it's just this beautiful dance that we get invited into. I'm not sure what grade that was going to get me. I hope it's at least a B and I pass. So we'll see. Let's stand together. The band's going to come out. We're going to sing some more 90s tunes together. Lord, uh, thank you, Jesus, that you are generous. And uh, yeah, God. Jesus, that you, would, that you would become poor so that, so that we could become abundantly wealthy in the kingdom. Uh, we just pause to say thank you. And there's no way we could repay what you have done. But it's not meant to be repaid. It's a gift. And I pray that that would melt our hearts to live differently. Particularly with our stuff. So I just pray, God, that you would uh, plant the root of grace and gift and the Christ gift in our hearts and that it would grow and that it would manifest kingdom investments that last forever. Thanks that what an indescribable gift that you invite us into that. So let us enter the, the flow, the river of grace and may we never stop moving. In Jesus' name, amen.